And what they found was that over that 24-hour period, 14 people held the baby. So the mother held the baby about 40% of the time, probably when she was feeding it, right, or sleeping. And that was like a light bulb moment for me when I was doing my doula training because I thought, oh, that's okay that I didn't want to hold the baby all the time. You're not meant to hold your baby all the time. To me, so I always say that to my class, you know, no wonder you're feeling tired and exhausted. Where are your other 14 people that are living in your house to hold the baby? Hello, and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. And my name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode three of season two. And in today's episode, you uh, speak to Jojo. I do speak to Jojo. Jojo. Not Jojo Siwa. Back in the USSR, you know, Beatles song, Jojo was. Okay. Sure. So I went like teeny bobber, you went Beatles. Yeah. Okay. But That's neither of those is true. True. I'm no, speaking it's not with, that Jojo. No. I'm speaking with the utterly divine woman, Jojo Hogan. Okay. So Jojo is someone who I wish I knew 10 years ago mm. when I was pregnant with our first baby. Do you think if you knew Jojo, there wouldn't be slow? Um, anyway, I'm giving away too much. Don't answer that question. Okay. Just, my, just, my lawyers... My yeah. lawyers advised me to not answer that exactly. question. Just tell us about Jojo. So Jojo is a yoga teacher. She's an aromatherapist. She is a doula, a birthing doula, a massage therapist. And she's worked with expectant mothers for many years. And just over the last two years, she's developed what is now known as the slow postpartum movement and has shifted her work to being that of a postpartum doula. So my understanding of doula was always someone who helped a woman through birth. Home birth. Oh, not necessarily. Oh, really? No. Yes, it, like a lot of women who do home birth have a doula present. Can you have a doula in the hospital? Absolutely. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I never did, so yeah. my knowledge, that is the extent of my knowledge. But, yeah. but what Jojo has done... Has I was t- your doula. Sure. <laughs> You're very helpful. Gave me someone's hand to squeeze. <sighs> Moving on. Jojo now works with new the mothers. The gas was good. I can't Sorry. believe you stole that from me. I oh, know. Anyway, keep going. I wouldn't be the only guy that's done that. Jojo works with new mothers now, but has extended this, this role of doula, like birth doula to being a postpartum doula. So she offers support, wisdom, sometimes things like massage therapy or yoga, or um, she makes meals for people you know jojo is like your village it's like this holistic from top to bottom provider for women post-birth look it is but the thing that i love about it and the reason that i i really wanted to speak to her on the podcast is because it is grounded in these ancient philosophies these ancient indigenous cultures essentially who have always cared for the mother for Mm. anywhere between 30 and 40 days after a birth. Mm. And when Jojo introduced me to her work, it was so counter to my experience of Mm. having a baby. Because for me, and I know for a lot of other mothers, the expectation that was probably mostly self-perpetuated of bouncing back, 
getting back into your genes, back yeah. into the swing of things, you know. So true. Back to normal mm. when your normal had changed completely. That pressure was immense. And it meant that I was running on empty from the get-go. Right? Because was, you, th- you think before the birth, like how much goes into like making sure that you're comfortable. Exactly. And, do you know what I mean? Like, but after the birth, all the attention is turned from you to the to baby. To the baby. That's right. And this is what... That's cr- I've only just realized that. And look, I, I think that that is an issue that needs to be rectified. And Jojo and the work Absolutely. she does is all about that. She's about starting the conversation, uh, arming women and their partners with tools for developing a village. I mean, because she's like, the reality is a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford a full-time postpartum doula. doula but yeah. what are things that we can do Some core ahead of time yeah. to start to bring this idea of slow mindfulness presence to what is a hugely stressful time, mm. you know, and it, for me, it felt like a debilitating time. And talking this re- this conversation, I've got to be honest, really opened up some old wounds for me. Like, of course. Because it, like, it was tough. Yeah. And we speak about this a bit. So I just, I, I'm really passionate about the work that she does. And so maybe even if we started to adopt some of these, I don't know what they are because I haven't listened to the episode, but you know what I mean? Some of these core fundamental principles. Right. You know, we may be able to in some way alleviate some postnatal depression and well, exactly. And look, Jojo does go to pains to, to yeah. explain that there is a difference between mm. that. Depression, like yeah. deep-seated depression. Yeah, and mood disorders yeah, yeah, and of course, of course. clinical depression, which is what I was diagnosed yeah. with, and mums who just struggle. Yeah. But I absolutely agree that mm. for me, and I can only speak to my experience, that some of this would have certainly alleviated um, that feeling of bereavement that I felt. So... This is a really wonderful conversation and for any parents to be, anyone thinking about starting a family, anyone who knows of someone who is about to have their first or second or third child, head to slowpostpartum.com. It's Jojo's website. She's got some great resources for you there. Uh, And you can always head over to the show notes as well at slowyourhome.com slash season two and all of the resources and links that we we talk about today will be there hey i want to mention real quick before we get in this is a very long intro but patreon and our slow experiment club which will be kicking off very soon actually yeah beginning of march yeah so if you don't know what that is it's you know when we used to do our slow experiments throughout the year yes uh back in 2016 we did one per month Mm -hmm. where i think 2018 we might have done few throughout the year but they're so popular that we wanted to like dedicate a whole program of work to it and that's what this patreon club is all about yeah this slow experiment club that starts in march and the first experiment is on social media yeah slowing your social media being intentional with it so look you can uh the great thing about patreon is you can contribute as much or as little as you would like per month as little as a dollar a month is all it takes to get in. Uh, and for people who are already Patreon supporters, you are already in. You don't need to change anything. And I'm really excited about this. Very much looking forward to it. So uh, head over to patreon.com slash slow to, uh, to take part. But in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with the delightful Jojo. Jojo, hello. How are you? 
I'm really well, Brooke. It's lovely to talk to you. It is such a delight to talk to you. I mean, even just the sound of your voice is soothing. So this is, this is sure to be, you know, one of those conversations that I'm just going to walk away from feeling <sighs> at peace. Um, but, you know, I was saying to you before we hit record, this is a conversation that I'm so excited to have because what you do is so near to my heart and my experiences as a mother. Uh, you have developed the slow postpartum movement and do so much wonderful work in supporting families, particularly mothers, through those first really vital weeks, really overwhelming weeks of, of parenthood. Um, and for anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a number of years, you've probably heard my experiences of postnatal depression. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to, to diving into that with you. But before we do, can I ask you about your personal journey towards slowing down and simplifying? I mean, where did that begin? What prompted it for you? Sure, yeah. Well, I've probably always been a little bit of a, a greenie and a hippie from a very young age. Um, I was born in London and then I grew up in New Zealand. Uh, I went back to London in my late teens and early 20s and had, as you you know, probably know of anybody who's lived in London, it's not very slow over there. It's not a slow place. Right. So, but had lots of fun, obviously. And then it got a little bit overwhelming, and I decided to move down to uh, southwest England, a place called uh, a county called Devon. And um, I was lucky enough to land in a beautiful, beautiful part of the country, tiny little village, very traditional, the thatched cottages, little chocolate box um, environment, and it was divine. And down there, I was very much a sort of sunk into that lovely way of life, which had a very strong community. Uh, there was quite a lot of people that had moved in from other areas, but I was able to kind of uh, get into the good life with my partner and we had our own vegetable garden and uh, it was a, a very slow-paced way of living and I absolutely loved it. And lived there for a few years and I had my son down there and then about 15 years ago I moved back to New Zealand to be closer with family and back to Auckland which is a small city really compared to many but I think it was that touch of living in a rural environment in a traditional community that really allowed me to to tune into that slower pace of life and I've tried to maintain it over the last years but it's been a bit of a crooked path as as, uh, I think many people will appreciate that sometimes you have slower times than others in your life don't you absolutely I couldn't agree more and I think hearing about those those crooked paths is really important because otherwise we see people living slow you know at least on the exterior and we assume that that is unachievable for us because we see our own messes you know but the reality is life is messy and I think making those changes is it's a process, and to get there, you, you need to go through the process. That's right. So once you uh, once you got back to New Zealand, when did you begin working with new parents? In yeah, yeah what, what when did that transition sort of happen? So I, I'm a yoga teacher and a massage therapist, and when I got back to New Zealand, I had to set up a new business, and I was teaching uh, yoga, a pregnancy yoga class, and I absolutely loved working with the pregnant woman, and I also taught. Um, infant massage as well, baby massage classes. And I had a real drawing to working with that client group. Uh, So I started specializing in that area and I started a business, uh, a a pregnancy spa and wellness center here in Auckland called Bella Mama. And that was a a wonderful way of really uh, specializing in the area that I loved and I felt passionate about. 
But um, talking about sort of leaning into the busyness, that involved starting a whole new business. And I, I threw myself into that and enjoyed a lot of it. But it was that classic trajectory, I think, of thinking that as soon as I made something, I had to make it bigger and right. I had to make it expand it. And, you know, I had to have one clinic, two clinics, all those kind of things. And I probably... I would say burnt myself out a couple of times just through really throwing myself into that business world. So last year I I sold the business and um, decided to focus on my, what I've realized over the last couple of years has been my true love and that's my postpartum doula work, my doula support of working particularly with new mothers. Mm -hmm. And the reason I decided to do that is because I noticed over the past 15 years of working with pregnant and new mums, both in the yoga classes and in the clinic, that there was a a theme that was happening, and and that was that I would care for these beautiful women all the way through their pregnancies, and they would be very committed to having healthy and planned uh, pregnancies. They looked after themselves. They came to yoga. They did massage, you know, had massages, all those kind of things, but often I would I would just lose touch with them after the baby came. I'd get to the end of the pregnancy and I'd say, oh, you had a lovely baby and mm. later and maybe come back for a postnatal massage. And sometimes they would and sometimes they wouldn't. But if they did, or maybe if I bumped into them on the street then with their baby, I would see them with this little baby and say, oh, isn't it wonderful? You've got a beautiful baby. How are you doing? And they'd say, oh, I'm great. And then they'd just burst into tears. Mm. I remember that feeling. <laughs> yeah, you know, they would smile and they'd look at me in the eyes and they'd say, oh, everything's great. And then they would cry and, mm-hmm. and they would cry and cry. And it hadn't been great, of course. It had been really crappy and hard and difficult and completely overwhelming. And and I had so much empathy and understanding for that because I knew how hard it was, is. And I had had the same experience with my boy all those years ago. And it really got me thinking, like, how can I support women beyond the birth of the baby? And so that's when I started looking into uh, different ways and I discovered what a postpartum doula was. And as soon as I discovered that, I thought, this is, this is what I need to do. This is, my, this is my work now. This is my life's work. And I've been doing that for the past two or three years, supporting m- mothers and families one-on-one, and it's uh, truly the most amazing rewarding work that I've done it's incredible uh you know and I love that you allowed yourself the time to find work that aligned you know with your values and you can tell just talking to you you light up and when you first wrote to me you were just lit up talking about your work uh and you've you've developed this movement called slow postpartum movement and can you explain to me like what does that look like what does a slow postpartum look like Sure, sure. Well, I was very uh, blessed when I first started doing my training to find a a, a woman called Julia Jones, who's based in Perth, actually. She's a a, a doula, postpartum doula, and uh, and now uh, trains doulas. She's got a, um, a company called Newborn Mothers. And her training was very special because what it uh, what it acknowledged was the brought into the training the the postpartum care practices that are practiced all over the world by different indigenous cultures, and kind of linked that into the the modern day neuroscience that's been done on on our brains and how our brains work and specifically the brain of a of a birthing and a postpartum mother. And I'll extrapolate on that in a minute. But what I realised 
kind of just, I think I'd always been interested in the slow living movement. And I kind of got a lent into the busyness for a few years. And then when I sold the business, I thought, look, I, I really need to slow down myself. Mm-hmm. And I also realized that so much of what I've been talking to and teaching postpartum women over the, and pregnant women over the last few years is all about slowing down, is all about taking taking time to enjoy those special times, or not even enjoy them, just, just simplify, you right. know? Because as we talked about before, we're so overwhelmed, we tend to be with choices and with information in those few weeks and months following the birth of a baby. But yet we are also encouraged and almost pressured to rush into our and into our back into our old lives. Right. And this is something you and I were talking about before we hit record, because that was me, you know, that was Yes. My experience with both of our children, and I know it, I'm certainly not alone. I think that's every new parent. And I think the internet has a lot to do with it. I mean, you go back half a generation, a generation. There were books, there were experts, there were well-intentioned relatives and maybe possibly strangers on the street giving you advice. But it's, you know, the the, the breadth of information and advice and goals on the internet is so crushing in its in its overwhelmingness to a new parent, you know, because it doesn't matter where you look, you feel like you're doing something wrong. You're not bouncing back enough. You're not bouncing back quick enough. You're not fitting into your pre-baby genes or you're not back at the gym or, you know, your baby's not sleeping through the night or whatever it may be. The pressure is debilitating. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that's a huge part of the work that I do. And then going back and acknowledging and educating women as to the as I mentioned before, the traditional postpartum mm. care practices around the world, which are almost the extreme opposite of that. So in every culture, I mean, this is so fascinating, in every culture around the world, whether it's India or China or Indonesia or South America, traditionally there has been a period of time afforded to a new mother after the birth of her baby. Now, it's traditionally 30 or 40 days. So I'm not sure if you've ever heard the terminology, the first 40 days mm. in China. You know, they call it the golden month, the sitting moon. There's a period of time where a new mother is allowed a time of complete and utter rest. And she is cared for and nurtured by her community, nourished with all these different practices. Now, the fascinating thing about them is that depending on what country you come from um, or you look into, they're all a little bit different because of the cultural differences. So the food might be slightly different in India as it is to China, for example. But the similarities are really interesting. So do you want me to tell you about them? I would love you to tell us about them, yeah. They're so, so, I mean, I just find this so interesting. The similarities are in the first 30 to 40 days following the birth of a baby, the first one is rest. The mother is encouraged to completely and utterly rest. In, in India, I remember one of the Indian grandmas told me that uh, in, on, or around the bed. So five days in the bed, she said five days on the bed, five mm. days around the bed, like you're not moving from that bedroom. Total rest. And 40 days, and sometimes in China, or 30 or 40 days, where you're just encouraged to rest in bed with your baby, feed your baby, and sleep as much as you can, which is understandable because your body has just done something incredible. It's, right. it's run a marathon, whether you've had a, a normal vaginal birth or a C-section birth, whatever kind of birth you've had, it's, it's extraordinary feat Absolutely. of endurance. 
So rest is the first one. The second one is uh, food. So specifically, again, you know, uh, differs depending on what culture you come from, but the food is always made for you, served to you with love. And often the similarities in the food are that it's uh, very warm, no cold food often. Food is not not allowed. It has to be well cooked and it's uh, very nourishing. So soups and dals and stews and broths and things like that are specifically made for the new mum. Spices are used quite a lot. And that's because it's seen that um, after the birth and the pregnancy, her digestive system is quite weak. So you need, she needs to be fed with food that's going to strengthen her digestive system and also nourish her baby with, with uh, breast milk so she can make good breast milk. The third one is massage. Mm. So in most cultures, the, the, the new mother is massaged sometimes every day. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be absolutely lovely? <laughs> so every day the massage therapist comes or her grandmother or maybe her mother or mother-in-law and she's massaged for as long as she wants to be. The baby's massaged too. So every day she's cared for with specific body work to help her rehabilitate her, her, her body. In Indonesia, every day for 40 days, she, she receives massage. And um, the other similarities are uh, warmth. It's very important she stays warm. It's quite funny, actually. My, my Chinese uh, girls who are in the yoga class, quite often they'll have their mum or their grandma come over. And uh, then they've got to, even if it's 30 degrees, they've got to wear a hat and socks. <laughs> They're dying in there. But it's very important that she she keeps warm, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of why in a minute. And the other one, which is, I think, incredibly important, but totally under-acknowledged, and especially in our culture, is that there's often some kind of, of ritual or celebration around, especially when she gets to the end of that of that time. There might be a party or a, a celebration or a ritual where she's – becomes a mother, if you know what I mean. And in, in uh, Morocco, she's d- dressed up like a bride in all her beautiful clothes and all her beautiful jewellery, and she's taken out you know, for a party where all the gorgeous food is served. And it's all about, in fact, all of these practices, if you, if you notice, they're not really about the baby. Mm. They're, they're about the mother. Right. They're about celebrating her, rehabilitating her, nourishing her, nurturing her, caring for her and loving her so that she can afford all of that to her baby. And this is what I find so stunningly beautiful about that whole approach is it's really kind of internalizing this message that if we – if we take care of ourselves, if we fill ourselves up, or in this case, if we do that for someone else, a new new mother, we then arm ourselves with the tools – to be able to spread that love back. Yes, you know, yes. But well, we can't do that when we're empty, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is the actual whole foundation of, of the work that I do and I feel that the slow post part of movement is that, that I, okay, it's probably unlikely that we can have a daily massage for 40 days even though it would be wonderful. Although it's funny, I, I, I've done that once in New Zealand. I did that in Auckland and I often tell this story because I did it once for a, a mum uh, she rang me one day, an Indian uh, mum, and she said, I want you to come to my house every day for 40 days and massage me because it's part of our cultural pra- tradition. Mm-hmm. And I arrived at the house, and it was a tiny little flat under another house. It was it was small. Her partner was a career driver. And so they didn't have much money. They didn't have much many resources at all. 
she had her mum there that had come from India as well to look after her, but she really, and we'll talk about this in a minute really, about how we can create, you know, and not everybody's going to do this, but she really valued that part of her, of that care tradition of having a, uh, a daily massage. And it was a short massage and she, we negotiated on how much, you know, the, of the price, but for her that was really important. And so she valued it and so therefore she invested in it, you know. Right, right, exactly. But anyway, so let me just carry on of the practices because I just wanted to tell you a couple more things. And one is that the other thing that seems to be important is is the support and love from other not necessarily older, but I want to say wise, nurturing woman around to, so that you have a, a, a village, obviously, and a support network to hold you so that maybe you're not getting the advice from all the different books and, and everything. If you think about a new mum in India, she quite often goes back to her mum's home and her sisters and Tez will be around. So there's that sort of support net, network. So we've got the we've got the nutrition, we've got the rest, we've got the warmth, we've got the body work and the massage, the ritual and celebration and the support network from other wiser women. Um, and that is the similarity that runs through all the different cultural practices postpartum. Mm. They're different in, in every country. That's incredible that you're able to to look at all of these these different cultures, which are you know they can be vastly different from each yes. other, and the the way they care for a new mother is still incredibly similar. You know, with all of those 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 similarities, those threads through them. Do you, do you want to hear the cool thing about that though? This I is do. Just, I think the, the most exciting thing, and when I learned this from Julia's course, I just because I'm a bit of a science geek. So yeah, we've got all those similarities. And then when you learn about modern-day neuroscience, which, uh, you know, it's only been a thing really for the past 20 or 30 years once we've been able to MRI the brain and stuff like that, is that we find that all of these things help to boost a particular hormone in a woman's body that is absolutely essential for her to have in order to fall in love and to bond and to breastfeed her baby and that is of course as you probably know is the hormone oxytocin right that's incredible that there Isn't is so it? much wisdom that we're just finding out now that we have this you know the tools to actually investigate scientifically but these that's cultures have, have had them in place for hundreds thousands of years somehow we, we they've known on some deep level so wow. if you extrapolate on that oxytocin as most of the listeners will know is the hormone of love it's the hormone of um, birth so it's it's uh, latin description is fast birth so it creates the very strong contractions of a birth that help to push the baby out but then afterwards it's the hormone that causes the mother and the baby to fall in love with each other and to bond mm. and it also helps to facilitate the production of breast milk so oxytocin is essential for for a baby's survival obviously because if the mother do, you know on an evolutionary level if the mother doesn't fall in love with the baby and want to take it out at home from the forest and successfully breastfeed the baby then the baby's uh, survival is is uh, less likely so when we well put it this way if we reverse it if a if a animal or mammal because we are mammals feels uh exhausted and stressed feels cold and hungry and actually doesn't feel supported i'm probably talking more about human beings here Mm -hmm. but doesn't supported by her community and safe then her oxytocin levels will drop out 
and she'll be less likely to be falling in love with her baby and successfully breastfeeding her baby. Wow. That's, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I want to ask you, sorry, before we go on, because I know I've transported myself back 10 years to those first foggy weeks and months where I just felt bereft, (laughs) you know, and I, I had been told that this flood of love would be instantaneous and all consuming. And I loved my daughter, of course, but it wasn't, there was never that, that baby high, you know, I never had that. That, you know, that, that, that thing that I was taught was going to happen to me and it didn't. And I I really felt bereft at this period and and completely at a loss of what to do. I mean, as much as I would love to think that I would be able to incorporate a lot of what you've said, I don't think I would have been able to for a lot of reasons. Um, So what's something that a, a new parent who is feeling completely at sea can do that is realistic, that can bring some of this slowness to the first weeks and months of being a parent? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. But I'd also like to mention too that I think there has to be a difference between actual clinical postpartum depression and mood disorders, which I think right. you were diagnosed with, weren't you? I was the second time around, yeah. That's correct, yeah. And so that, that is there is a slight differentiation with that because a clinical mood disorder, which are very very common, up to 15 to 20% of women we think will suffer from a clinical mood disorder. And that sometimes absolutely does need um, uh, medical help, potentially uh, medication, for example, to help a woman lift herself out of that. But that sense of being bereft, that sense of loss, that sense of grief, that sense of exhaustion and overwhelm, that is much more common, much Mm. more. I, I had that myself. I felt it was interesting. I often tell the story that it's they say it takes a village to raise a baby. Well, I lived in a village when I had my baby. <laughs> my village was 10 houses. I lived in a beautiful village where I had a lot of support, but I didn't know that I needed to ask for it. Right. I didn't know that I needed a village. And so you ask what can women do, and I'm particularly probably talking to women out here who've maybe not had their baby yet or they're pregnant Um, is that we need to start planning for the postpartum in the same way as we plan for our birth, yeah? Mm. We do a lot of planning around that, or or even the other example that I give is planning for the wedding. You know, the the wedding is this big day that we plan for in the same way as our birth, the birth of our baby, we plan for it, put all this attention into it. But how many of us really plan for that postpartum weeks when the baby is out and, I heard a great quote once, you know, I knew I was pregnant, but why didn't anybody tell me I was going to have a baby? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know about you, but it's true, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I remember that that sort of shell-shocked feeling when we got sent home from the hospital a couple of days after I'd had our daughter. I'm like, is someone letting me leave with her? You know, (laughs) who's going to stop me? This is ridiculous. I'm not prepared for this. I think I said to the doctor, I said, I, I don't think you understand. I've never done this before. Right. You, can't, you can't let me go. But so, so when do we start to think about the postpartum and what, what lessons can we learn from these indigenous cultures? It's not that we're going to completely copy them. Obviously, so many women aren't, aren't – it's not available to them to have those long extended periods of rest and a daily massage, for example. But how can we plan, for example, for the first six to 12 weeks – knowing that we are going into a massive life transformation. It's, it, this is a rite of passage. Mm. And 
in other cultures, again, we keep you know going back to that. Rites of passage have ha, have celebrations and rituals associated with them, and our rite of passage is moving from one life to another life, from being, for example, a maid to a mother, and that is an important transition. It's important. One thing we haven't even touched on is the neuroscience of of the brain. Our brains completely change when we become mothers. We have a whole uh, plasticization of the brain that goes on, and we almost get a whole new brain. Um, and that sort of foggy, gooey, hormonal place is is really important. We we want to be able to fall in love with our babies. We want to be able to successfully breastfeed our babies. We want to be able to recover from this enormous effort of pregnancy and birth. Who's going to support us to do that? And can we gather our village around us? Now, some of us are lucky enough to have the village. Uh, we have friends and family around, for example, who are willing to help. But what I find in my work, and I know from my own example, and you, I think you were the same, is that sometimes asking for that help help is the biggest barrier. Absolutely. We're not used to it. Yeah, you know? and I think because we, I think we, we really idolise coping. You know, we idolise yes. the people who have got it together, who really they manage to pull on their pants and brush their hair and get out in the first week, and who have got dinner on the table and they they're looking well and they've lost the baby weight and you know they're coping. They they're not the ones who are crying in the front seat of their car because they can't get out because they're just too That's tired. Cool. You know, and I think. Asking for help. You know, I said to someone, not maybe within the first year of being a parent, um, I felt like a prisoner of my own judgments. Wow, yeah. You know, because I would, that's that's what I would judge as a successful mother, you know, someone who had their shit together, someone who was um, like, they looked like they used to look. They had bounced back. They'd gone back to normal. And then I would carry this around knowing that I wasn't going to, bounce back or go back to normal because it was a whole new life yet I couldn't ask for help because of those judgments that I'd made before I knew any better that's right and you often think you you know you are sometimes your own worst enemy aren't you because I don't think actually other people are judging you really it's it's your own judgment on yourself and comparing comparison that's the that's the word that you've got to yes and as you mentioned before with social media it's it can be worse but but in saying that it's a double-edged sword in a way because because there are some of my mums have have shared with me a lovely supportive online communities out there of, of as, as well with mothers sharing the, the real the, the brutality of motherhood and and the challenges as well so part of that can be your village as long as you so one of the things I really encourage my mums to do and this is very much in alignment with what, what you talk about is that before this baby comes along think about what your values are think mm. about what's important to you and your family and really nut that out before baby comes and try to focus on that after the the baby comes because there's so much superfluous out, out there. There's so many things that aren't important. And so gathering your village and asking for help and being vulnerable are the really hard bits. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, we're used to being strong feminists and I always, you know, I always um, totally – own that uh, term. I'm a, I'm a feminist 100%. But unfortunately, one of the one of the kind of flip sides of feminism over the last 40 years, for example, is being told that girls can do everything and anything. And of course, we can. But just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should, right? Especially 
around this time. Right. And not all at the same time. Not all at the same time, exactly. And actually, I would argue maybe that we can't, you yeah. know, that, that, that being a parent is too many jobs. We actually aren't meant to parent in isolation. This whole nuclear family thing that we've got going on in the Western world is completely alien to most parts of the world. In most of the parts of the world, we, we parent babies within a, a group, within a village, within a tribe, within a family, extended family. So having one or two people in a house with a baby, which is a 24-7 job, mm-hmm. That's too many. That's too much work for one or two people. Mm. We can't do a twenty-four-seven job, and then we wonder why we become stressed and exhausted. Right. And then you throw in work, you know, paid yes. work out of the home for many new parents, and that's especially sort of, in the states where they don't have, um, you know, even any maternity maternity leave. leave. Exactly, and I think the vast majority of of parents, I think, would love to to think about spending the first year or two at home with their new babies without going out for paid work, but it's just not feasible given the cost of living you know so I mean you're absolutely right combine paid work with the work of parenting in a family with one or two parents and that's just so much but even I would argue Brooke that that even staying at home with a baby is still a 24 7 absolutely yeah there's no other job that you're asked to be on call 24 7 all the way through the day and then all the way through the night as well and in no other part of the world uh, are mothers expected to do this alone Mm. no uh, and it's it's tragic, and we want then we and then we feel guilty because we don't want to be doing it all the time. I don't know about you, but you know, by the end of the day, when my partner came home, I'd be standing at the end of the driveway with the baby. Oh yeah, it's your turn. <laughs> yeah. Like it's your turn. Yep. I need to hand the baby over. But of course, what I realised when I was doing my training, and this is actually a really interesting, and I can't cite the the source, but I remember reading somewhere that this anthro, um, anthropologist did a study of a of a hunter-gatherer tribe in, I think it was Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. So it was a place where they still live in the same way as we lived, you know, 100,000 years ago or something, you know, very one of the few places where they lived in a hunter-gatherer society. And what they found, they'd studied the mother and the newborn baby over a 24-hour period. And what they found was that over that 24-hour period, 14 people held the baby. Wow. 14 people, and within one hour, eight people held the baby. Yeah. So the mother held the baby about 40% of the time, probably when she was feeding it, right, or sleeping. Yeah. And that was like a light bulb moment for me when I was doing my doula training because I thought, oh, that's okay that I didn't want to hold the baby all the time. You're not meant to hold your baby all the time. Mm. That... To me, so I always say that to my class, you know, no wonder you're feeling tired and exhausted. Where are your other 14 people that are living in your house? <laughs> right. <laughs> to hold the baby. Somewhere along the line, we've, well, actually, I tell you when it was, it was around about the time of the Industrial Revolution. I was going to ask you this question. I was very curious to see if there was a time where it changed for us in our culture. Well, apparently uh, that's a correct because what happened is we lived in that way for, for, for you know many years the hunter-gatherer groups, mm. and then we went to an agricultural society, which most of the world still lives in many different areas of the world, but of course that's still a village, and so therefore there was always people around to hold the baby, uh, and then it was only about 300 years ago when the Industrial Revolution came, and everybody went from the village to the factory who was left holding the baby. Right. One person, yeah. yeah? 
And it was interesting and probably um, not a coincidence that it was around about that time that people started writing. When I say people, it's usually men, uh, started writing parenting expert books <laughs> right. about how to, how to kind of control the baby in a way, you know. Um, and that probably is what, in a way, women needed because they, they were exhausted and overwhelmed from holding the baby all the time because they weren't meant to be. You know? That's really interesting, actually. So that was the flow-on effect. You know, women were left as the vast majority stake in childcare for, yes. you know, uh, for many years and became overwhelmed by it and then needed solutions to help them cope with it. And the solution, probably one of the better solutions would have been, well, let's stop doing it this way, but that wasn't an option. So the solution became parenting experts and, you know, like books on telling you how to um, raise your baby. Really yeah. interesting. Really interesting. I think it? I find it interesting uh, coincidence as well that that was sort of the beginning of the era of um, stuff and stuff for convenience sake and gadgetry and all of these things that were meant to make our lives easier but in fact have made our lives more expensive, have made our yeah. lives more complicated, more cluttered, um, have made the Joneses who we try and keep up with such a fixture in our minds that this was the same point in history where the way we parented in those first months changed. I think that's a really interesting kind of intersection there. Yes, definitely. And as you probably know, with having a baby, all of a sudden, all the stuff arrives. <laughs> right, which is another thing I wanted to bring up, because I think that by no means is that the biggest issue that's facing parents, but it's overwhelming, you know, yeah. that that question of, well, what, what do I actually need? So do you have any advice about that? I mean, how can you approach that with a slower, more intentional mindset before filling your house with stuff that potentially isn't necessary? I know, I'm just laughing because I remember, you know, we lived in this little tiny cottage when I brought the baby home and it was just a little two up, two down. And I remember on the first day that I brought the baby home and I remember looking around and, and this whole house was full of stuff right. <laughs> and it was all his. <laughs> I remember thinking, this baby's tiny, what's all this stuff doing and filling my house up? Yeah. So, however, I do remember... Um, and I, something I share with my mums as well is that going back to talking about that support systems and and uh, bringing your know, village around, that's obviously uh, going to ha have some cost associated with it because I if, if you don't have people that can come and look after you for free like your mums and your friends and family, I always say that it's better to um, pay mm. if you and afford it for people to come and look after you. So what I mean by that is if you can afford a cleaner or if you can afford to get some food delivered or those kind of services that look after the mum. And the way I say to, for people to afford that, if they're on a budget, which many of us are, is to is to not buy the stuff and instead to borrow it, to, to you know, beg, borrow and steal or, or get it secondhand as right. much as you can. Talk to your friends who've got older babies. They are the ones that know the kind of stuff you're going to need and the stuff that that you won't need. You know what I mean? Yes. It's so easy to get caught up in, in thinking that you have to buy everything. But in, in my um, own situation, I remember we borrowed a bassinet, we borrowed a cot, we bought all the clothes secondhand on, on uh, eBay because we were on a budget when I had a baby. But then if you save any of that money, then all the stuff that you borrow or buy secondhand can be used to put aside to look after you guys. And when I say you guys, I mean both 
partners in, in, in the relationship. It's really important to look after dads and partners yeah. as well because they are also often exhausted and overwhelmed and, and the, the statistics on relationships having a struggling after the birth of a baby in the first three years, I think it's about 75% of relationships have a crisis in the first three years or, or report that the relationship is, is less satisfying and it's about 15 to 20% of relationships that end after the birth of a baby. So we need to really nurture and nourish the partnership as well and I think if we invest money, not so much in stuff, but in being cared for by the community, that's really important. That's a really wonderful point, I think, on both sides. You know, using the savings, potentially, you don't have to buy the expensive pram necessarily. Perhaps your neighbour has one you can borrow or whatever it may be. And then using those savings to offer, to, to provide some support if you don't have that that village. And again, go talking to other parents because they'll tell you about the stuff that yeah. you don't need. Eh? Yeah, well, I think, and that's that's it. That's tapping into the village, isn't it? Even if it's not practical hands-on assistance that they can provide you, it is that sort of wisdom that comes from a, a parent who has done it just before you and they will know, you know, they will have. That's where I found all of my best advice when I finally allowed myself to be open to it was from other parents. You know, you sit yeah. down, you have those honest conversations and not the surface ones necessarily at, at playgroup, which I hated, but the ones where you sit down and you talk about what it's really like, and that's where you, you learn. Exactly. And I, th- I suppose what I'd say about that too is, is going back to what we talked about before is just thinking about what your values are around parenting because everybody's got their own parenting style haven't they and there's oh, a yeah. continuum you know there's the people that are very very attachment parent led and then there's the other sort of side of the continuum with parent led parenting and somewhere within that continuum we we find ourselves and and that resonates with our values and philosophy so all i would say is that find find your tribe you know find the people that that resonate with your philosophy because unfortunately it's sad to say there's a lot of judgment the, you know yeah. the mummy the mummy wars are real oh i know yeah. sometimes women do feel judged uh, by their choices and of course there's no right or wrong but if we find our own tribe then when we go to them and ask questions and when we say hey i want to try this or then we'll, we're much more likely to get support mm. rather than judgment does that make sense absolutely yeah finding your people i think is yeah. so wonderful and yes. it's, and you know when you find them because you that stuff falls away you know the pretense the facade the coping mechanisms we've developed over months and years they they fall away and that's exactly. when you, you know can be you yeah. can you know show yeah and the lovely thing about what you're doing is bringing together the slow living community of course and i find that that's what i love so much about your work and and the work of the the slow living uh, community out there in the world it's almost as if you meet somebody who listens to your podcast then you'll know that you're going to have something in common with them <laughs> oh that makes me so happy just thinking about two random people who are like i listen to this show called the slow home podcast oh me too <laughs> i've done it myself my darling that's exactly what you know how i've met lovely people is and, and you, you, you've brought that all together which is just so wonderful and i'd love to think about you know new mums in that community who are getting together and sharing because they are much more likely to be in, into sustainability and uh, the, the environment and feeling that these things are important and they'll mm. bring that into their mothering as well and we if we find our tribe those women will support us and we don't need to worry about the, the judgment from other from other quarters we no. can put that aside and and the other thing is that we're, we're more likely to be sort of stronger in our convictions when we do 
come up against, for example, judgment from your mother-in-law or, you know, somebody who, who is not sharing your philosophy? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that, you know, when you've got people in your corner who yeah. you have been able to talk this stuff over with, you develop you develop a voice and you develop a point of view and you also develop ways of delivering that point of view that that are you just you stand there and you own it. You know, it's not aggressive, it's not dogmatic or anything. It's just you're living within your your values, you're living an aligned life. And there is strength and confidence that comes from that, even when it's difficult, even in the face of someone who disagrees with you. It is there is a, a peace or an ease there because you know you are where you're meant to be that's right but i would say though the unfortunate thing is that that's actually a, a very difficult thing for a new mum to do oh, absolutely don't, don't you find in those first few weeks that's absolutely. why because you're so well there's a couple of different things going on you are for the first time in your life you have another person who is completely and utterly dependent on you for their survival mm-hmm. and that's i don't know about you but that actually completely took me by surprise and that crushing in in a way sense of responsibility all of a sudden that it wasn't just me that I had to think about that I had to make every decision for this little person was overwhelming and I was desperately worried about getting it wrong you know so that's where you start to listen to everybody and you're on google all the time well I wasn't but you know what I mean I can see the mums these days doing it and then getting so confused with all the conflicting advice the other thing is that you at the same time as you're trying to do all this you know you're out there trying to get all this advice you're also in this foggy sleep-deprived, exhausted oxytocin brain, which is makes you not think properly, and you're second-guessing yourself. And so you pile all that on top of a mother when she's not receiving nurturing care and support from her community, and it can, that's what starts to feel overwhelming. Mm. And part of the work that I do with my mums is I really try – very hard, very hard never to give them advice, to really try and foster their own confidence and their own mothering ability and always tell them, you know, you're the best mother for your baby. You you know what to do in your heart and your, your gut. You can by all means take advice from other people, but you know, you know, your baby wants you to be their best mum and, and to foster that confidence by loving them and caring for them and nurturing them rather than just being another expert. Right, and that's what I was, I was just thinking about this as, as we were chatting. None of what you have offered today has been about how to be a parent, you know, how to parent your baby. It has been about how to support yourself or how to support someone you know who is a new parent. And they're two very different things. So true. I often, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's so many people that are going to tell you how to parent the right and the wrong way. Right. And, of course, there is absolutely no right and wrong way but I, I totally get why we're desperate to, to, to we want to I remember thinking where is the instruction book for this baby yeah. how can please somebody <laughs> tell me how it works <laughs> just tell me what to do and I'll do it you know and it's, that's where we get caught up we, you know in following the book or the you know the advice and the hardest thing for new mums with this we, we touched on one which was asking for help being being vulnerable asking for support that's one of the hardest things and the second hardest thing is especially as as Maybe a woman who's a bit older, you know, we have babies a little bit older these days. We're used to having our own lives, everything under control, people doing what we want them, mm-hmm. <laughs> want them to do. We get this little person and they don't have an instruction book. They haven't read the book, the parenting book. They're not doing what we want them to do. And we are desperately worried about making a mistake. But of course, actually, there's no other thing that we learn how to do without making mistakes, right? Right. 
par- parenting is trial and error, and it's okay to make a, to make mistakes. Babies are pretty forgiving. We you know we 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 try something, it doesn't work. Can try something, try the next thing, take that little bit of advice, try it, see how it feels in your heart. That's what I say to my mums. Take the advice, see how it feels. Does it fit with your values? Does it feel okay for you? Um, try it. If it doesn't work, throw it out. You know, mm. but. But we're very reticent to do that. We think we have to do it perfectly the first time. Yeah. Well, failure, I mean, and I use that word loosely, but the, the idea of failing, of making a mistake, is something that we've been brought up to to shy away from. You know, we don't yes. want to fail. We've never been taught to embrace failure as a positive thing or as a learning experience even. It's just something that we should kind of be ashamed of. So the yes. idea of trial and error in something that feels so urgent as newborn parenting is um like that was that was scary to me initially you know what do you mean i have to just figure it out what do you mean <laughs> like, what do you mean you know what's the right thing to do exactly like i can't do it perfectly like all these other people on instagram yeah, are doing exactly. it exactly but of yeah. course what we don't realize is they're all falling to pieces too and but just not putting it on instagram funnily enough that's right yeah that's right there was a uh, a, a tv series um called let down that was yes. on. did you watch it yes, i did i did you enjoy that I, I thought it was very funny, um, and I enjoyed it, but a couple of my clients said they couldn't watch it because it was too painful. Right. And, that, you know, it's funny. That's how I felt, even though I only watched it God, two years ago, whenever it was released. It's a, I'll include a link to the show notes because it's a, um, I think it's actually on Netflix now around the world, but it's a, it's a, a, a new mum, you know, and going through what so many new mums go through. She lived in Sydney, you know, the pressures, the ridiculous situations we find ourselves in, but it, it was honest. And I think I, I couldn't watch it for the really? first little while and then I you know I loosened up and like it's all right Brooke you're through this now you know <laughs> this is just this is painful because you remember it but it was also really um refreshing I think I don't think yeah. I'd ever seen a portrayal of new motherhood that was quite so on the money for me totally and isn't it interesting though that it was so on the money that it was painful for you oh, to yeah. watch? <laughs> for most of us we're laughing but actually that really nuts down that for for many women they never forget that time after the birth of the baby and and it's it's laid down in our nervous system and that's because of our this change this brain change that we're going through the plastinization of the brain that happens postpartum where we get this whole new brain and in many traditional uh, cultures and medicine for example in ayurveda uh, which is the traditional medicine of india and yoga and in chinese medicine they say that a woman's brain has the opportunity to either be heal from from even past illnesses and conditions or to to really suffer in the long term mm. which means that so for example in ayurveda they say uh, 40 days 42 days for 42 years which means that the way that we care for a new mother in the 42 days after the birth has has repercussions in her brain for 42 years and and I I think the reason I bring that up is it just shows you when you ask women about their postpartum weeks, they, they'll remember, you know, they won't forget. Oh, it's yeah. about like birth. And it can bring up past trauma, you know, but, it, but at the same time, if they were cared for, nurtured, nourished, then it's a really positive experience. And they take that into their parenting journey as well, which is, I just feel that's so important, the, the way that we care for our new mums. And notice I say that we care for them because mm. I think self-care for new mums is not a thing. Women should be caring for themselves, you know. And this was the the final question I wanted to ask you, actually, this idea of self-care and 
I'm talking more about new parenthood in like Western culture, it, self-care and a new baby, they don't really feel like they fit together because you may try and nap when baby naps and, you know, you try uh, and um, often, more often than not for me, that never worked. Uh, so self-care felt like just another thing that I was failing at. So I love, I love your emphasis on how we care for the mother. Our community needs to care for the mother. That's correct. Uh, all I would say is that and encourage my students and clients to do this is we start thinking about it when we're pregnant because we can, we've got the time and space, especially first time round, you know, if we've got uh, time and space to put in that postpartum care plan, but that postpartum care plan involves gathering your village around, give, assigning the jobs that will need to be done. I get, I get my clients to you know, write a list of all the things that they think might need to be done, including cleaning the house and cooking meals and bringing mm. food and looking after older children and then assigning those jobs to people and asking for, for their help or, or even bringing in services so that you've got that all in place. So afterwards, when you're in that fog of baby land and exhaustion, then, okay, we might not have everything done for us, but even even just a few things that can be taken off our plate afterwards so that we're not having to think about mm. things afterwards. You know, So that involves bringing your village in um, so that you get the deep, the resting that you need, I think the rest is the key really afterwards, even just for that 40 days or, or three months window. But of course, it, it continues after that as well. We're not meant to parent in isolation. Mm. So much goodness here, Jojo. Thank you so much for sharing it. Uh, where, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Sure. So my uh, website is slowpostpartum.com and I offer a, a coaching service for people just wanting to find out more about how to implement a slow postpartum into their own lives. And I'd love to be uh, meet people on Facebook as well and Instagram, slow postpartum. Uh, and uh, yeah, I really would uh, love to be able to spread the word and just uh, get people talking about the real importance of the special time, not just for mothers, but for their partners, their whole families and the community in large, because I really feel that when we care for a new mother, that has a ripple effect for her baby, for her family, for her community. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, and I think helping me work through some stuff too. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. It's been lovely to talk to you, Brooke. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.